Welcome to the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Now here's your host, Dr. Mike Wall. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. Each year, an estimated 35,000 cardiac arrests and 62,000 strokes occur in Canada. It's estimated that heart disease, stroke, and related conditions take a life every five minutes. Approximately 1.6 million Canadians are living with heart disease and stroke, and much of these staggering numbers are related to lifestyle. According to the Heart and Stroke Foundation Canada, prevention is the key. In addition to the early detection and management of medical conditions such as high blood pressure, diabetes, and high cholesterol, you can also adopt healthy lifestyle changes to help reduce your risk of heart disease. The heart beats about 2.5 billion times over our average lifetime, pushing millions of gallons of blood to every single part of our body. It's the most important muscle in the body, and yet, in spite of the fact that 80% of premature heart disease and stroke is preventable, many of us don't know enough about the risk factors, causes, signs, and even the nature of heart disease. So today we welcome Opal Desmaris, Senior Manager of Health Systems for the Heart and Stroke Foundation. Rodolfo Pike, a nurse practitioner with Eastern Health, and Linda Green, who's living with heart failure. They're going to teach us about heart health, the risk factors, prevention, heart failure, and more from those working in the front line or living with the condition. Let's check it out. Hi, Opal. Welcome to the show. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you joining me today. Um, You work with the Heart and Stroke Foundation. You're a registered nurse. Can you give us a bit of a background on your organization and a bit of history there? Yes. So Heart and Stroke is Canada's biggest health charity. So we lead the fight against heart disease and stroke. Uh, We actually started in 1952 and are celebrating our 70th uh, anniversary this year. So very excited for that. Some of the work that we've done has been investing into life-saving research. So over the years, we've invested uh, 1.6 billion into different research areas. And uh, some of those kind of like key treatment and research breakthroughs include uh, the first successful open heart surgery, heart transplant, discovery of ACE inhibitors, which is a medication that significantly reduces the risk of heart attacks and strokes. We established the Canadian Stroke Best Practice Recommendations and funded research that discovered a better way to detect atrial fibrillation. Wow. Yeah. Those are all major health conditions that I've even heard of. And we're talking about those today as well. We're going to talk to some experts about some people that actually have these different conditions, but we're going to talk mostly about what your organization does today. And so your goals are to focus on prevention, right? And is it saving lives and then also transforming recovery? Is that the the key pillars? Yeah. Enhancing recovery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So promoting health, saving lives and enhancing recovery. Okay, well, let's talk about each one of these and break them down, because I'm sure you could talk like all day on each one of those topics. So tell me, in terms of like prevention side, like are people more susceptible to heart disease than others? I read data that show that there's strokes among young people are on the rise. How much of an impact do we have on age? What's happening to their lifestyle? Like, give me the lowdown on that. Mm-hmm. There are some risk factors that would put a person at a higher risk for heart disease or stroke than others. So we can kind of start there. Um, an example being uh, blood pressure. So high blood pressure is actually the number one cause of stroke and most heart diseases. Most people don't even know that they have high blood pressure or hypertension until they have an event. It's so important to know your blood pressure. I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit later too. Um, but other risk factors are conditions like diabetes, 
or um, genetic predispositions that you might have. Mm -hmm. And then of course, lifestyle. So looking at being smoke-free, physically active and eating a healthy and balanced diet are all things that will significantly reduce your risk of heart disease and stroke. Um, And then to your earlier point as well, just about how we're seeing some data that shows that strokes among young people are on the rise. Uh, You're absolutely correct. We are seeing that. We think this is due to people living a less active lifestyle. So spending more time in front of their screens, they're working harder, longer, and they're not taking the opportunities to get out and be active. We know that people are experiencing a lot of financial stress uh, pressures right now that can limit your access to healthy foods, uh, again, leading to an increased risk of things like diabetes or high blood pressure, and really just generally poor healthcare overall. So we are seeing that some of these conditions are showing up almost 10 years earlier than they would have in the past. Wow, that seems extremely significant when you think about something like a stroke, which is a major event. So are we going to be seeing this changing over time? Do you think that we're going to end up uh, increasing education to be able to make these things more known? Because I don't know if people really realize that at a younger age, they're more susceptible to stroke. Absolutely. Heart and Stroke works towards increasing awareness all the time. And um, a key component of that is through things like education and access to health information to try and give Canadians the tools that they need to live their healthiest and best lives and uh, reduce their, their risk. So it absolutely starts with education and prevention. Yeah, that's why it's so good to have somebody like yourself on here today to be able to talk about this. And there's there's one thing I think that you know people are starting to become aware of, and that is that women are more disproportionately affected by stroke. Is that true? Yes, it is. Actually, one third more women die of stroke than men. Um, And women generally have worse outcomes after a stroke, too. So we know that they're 60% less likely to regain their independence. Um, They have like fewer functional gains after a stroke, uh, which can ultimately lead to a worse quality of life. Well, maybe you can just give a quick lowdown on what happens when somebody has a stroke for people that are listening that might not actually understand the context. Yes. So the signs of a stroke, um, we say it's fast. So F-A-S-T. Face, is it drooping? Uh, Arms, can you raise both of them? Speech, is it slurred or jumbled? And if you're experiencing any of those for time to call 911 right away. There are some additional signs that you can have too, that being vision distortion, you can have balance problems or a sudden onset severe headache. Those on their own most likely may not indicate stroke, but if they're combined, they're also worrisome. So those first kind of four fast signs are the easiest to remember and so important to call 911 and not to drive yourself to the hospital. Our emergency medical systems know which hospital to take you to. And uh, that's why we want you to activate that system and call 911. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's critically important. I mean, and one of the things is, you know, trying to avoid ever being put in that life or death type situation with a stroke, like, you guys said that you, you educate uh, as well. What are some ways that you guys promote prevention? We do a lot of work influencing health public policy. So we work closely and in collaboration with Health Canada, the Canada Food Guide, and we provide education and health information to healthcare professionals and the general public. So some of our um, advocacy work has resulted in legislative and policy changes, both at the federal and provincial levels. So this work focuses on protecting youth from damages caused by vaping, which we know that can then lead to a higher risk factor later on in life. Uh, We can work to convince governments to protect kids' health through nutrition planning that includes 
includes restrictive marketing of foods and beverages to children. That's so important. Um, and just generally advocating for a healthier food supply. So some of this is done through tougher laws on sugar labeling and salt content. We also teach CPR and advanced cardiac life support uh, to healthcare professionals. And again, we created the stroke best practice recommendations. We work closely with provincial health systems to put that evidence-based practices into place. Well, it's true. I think everybody's heard of the Heart and Stroke Foundation, so it's uh, it's interesting for us to you know find out a little bit more about what they do. So we talked about this. Now we're getting sort of into the saving lives side of thing. You just mentioned CPR. We talked about stroke, but heart attack's different than stroke, right? So absolutely, are the signs for that different than a stroke? Yes. So the most common signs for a heart attack are going to include uh, chest or upper body discomfort, shortness of breath, sweating nausea or lightheadedness. So those are all signs that you might be experiencing a heart attack. Um, again, if you are feeling any of those and you're, and you're um, concerned along with that, you call 911, do not drive yourself to the hospital. Right. Right. And yeah, you know, and, and I guess, is there a difference between males and females and how they experience a heart attack? There is, and it is considerable and it's absolutely worth mentioning. So with women, what we're seeing is that you don't, women don't typically experience that um, distinct or sudden chest pain that you might see or hear about or know about, but often it's described as more of a diffuse pressure or pain sometimes across the lower chest, upper abdomen, um, and can be often referred to as even indigestion sometimes. So not, not typically presenting itself with that kind of sudden acute pain. Women are also more likely to experience pain in their back, sometimes instead of in their chest. And then sometimes having a, a stronger feeling of that dizziness or lightheadedness uh, and fatigue than we might see in a, a male presenting with a heart attack. And so when it comes to the guidelines, you're obviously speaking from experience as a registered nurse, but also somebody from the Heart and Stroke uh, Foundation, you guys have helped improve some of this emergency response you mentioned, like what does that actually mean? And what have you guys been able to do to sort of improve the quality of care? Yeah, um, again, kind of going back to that provincial and municipal government. So working to influence the adoption and legislation of um, increasing CPR uptake. So having CPR being uh, taught in schools, AED placements in public spaces, linking the uh, provincial AED registry to the 911 dispatch, and then supporting quality improvement uh, just overall in the emergency response system. And CPR courses, do they, you guys offer those across the country? So here in St. John's and and all around Newfoundland and Labrador as well? Yes, absolutely. We have um, uh, an essential CPR and AED course called Heart Saver. And you're absolutely right. It's open to everyone to find a course that is near you, whether you're in Victoria or St. John's, uh, you can just visit heartandstroke.ca. Oh, that's good to know. That's great because, yeah, it's something that people need to do regularly to remind themselves and to get updated. Things are changing with that. I'm still CPR certified. I think I've been certified since I was like 16 years old, which I'm, I'm happy I have that skill set. I hope I never have to use it, but it's good to have, and a lot of people need to do it for work. Now, let's sort of scoot into this last pillar we have here, this transforming recovery. What services are available to patients and their families that are recovering from heart failure or stroke or some sort of condition because it's already happened. Now they need some help. Mm -hmm. Heart and Stroke's website, so heartandstroke.ca, 
lists a ton of resources offering information on heart failure specifically if that's a condition that you've had experience with but also on lots of different heart diseases and on stroke this can be helpful for somebody who's living with that condition or if you're a family member or caregiver of somebody who has any of those conditions you can visit heartstroke.ca we also have online peer support communities so we know that mental health is challenging right now for everyone and um, people living with heart diseases or having experienced a stroke uh, can, you know, feel the impact of, of mental health challenges even more. So peer support is, is one great way that we can uh, combat some of those mental health challenges. And um, if you visit heartstroke.ca slash connect, you can find peer support communities for somebody who might be living with a condition or if you're a caregiver and looking for that peer support, there's a community for you there too. Are there any last thoughts you want to leave our listeners with? You know, it's a wellness show. We always like to hear from the experts as we close up an interview. Yes. Take the time to find out about your personal risk. I don't think that this doesn't apply to you. Uh, Be aware of the signs of an emergency, such as heart attack or stroke that we talked about today. And I know I've said this a few times, but if you do find yourself in a situation where you or someone else is experiencing a sign of an emergency, like heart attack or stroke, call 911. Don't drive yourself to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good advice. And I hope anybody listening who uh, has to ever apply something like that does it that way, because I know that there's a, a window of time that makes recovery a lot better the sooner you get treatment. So that's great advice. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. That was Opal Desmera's Senior Manager of Health Systems for the Heart and Stroke Foundation Canada. When we come back, we'll chat with Rodolfo Pike, who's a clinical educator and nurse practitioner with the Cardiac Care Program at Eastern Health. We'll be right back after the break. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back. Joining us now is Rodolfo Pike. He's been working in cardiac sciences for 20 plus years. He's held a lot of roles within the cardiac and critical care program. He's been a staff nurse, clinical educator for cardiology, and worked in the catheterization laboratory. He currently works as a nurse practitioner in the heart function clinic with Eastern Health, and he continues to present his heart failure research topics both locally and nationally. He joined us to share more about heart failure and what it means for the patients he sees each day. Let's check it out. Hi, Rodolfo. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's nice to have you. You're an expert in this area. And today we're talking all about heart health. Now, you've had a number of roles in a 20 plus year career. But today we want to talk about your role as a nurse practitioner in that heart function clinic at Eastern Health. Tell us a bit about your clinic and what your role is there. Um, So I've been a nurse practitioner since about 2011, and since that time, I've been fully ingrained into the Heart Function Clinic, which was initially developed back in 2007 here uh, in Eastern Health. The whole premise behind the uh, Heart Function Clinic was to address a very specific patient population within the cardiac world, was the patients who were diagnosed with congestive heart failure or some impairment of their heart function. They get referred uh, at this point in time by cardiologists who have seen the patient, have deemed them of having a working diagnosis of congestive heart failure and refer them to our clinic uh, for further management. 
What that management looks like is we see the patient that has the accurate diagnosis of heart failure, and then we use all the conventional goal-directed medical therapies uh, that are currently available to see if we can improve on their outcomes in terms of mortality, uh, improving their heart function status, and of course, improving their quality of life. So you're, you're no stranger to educating people. You've spoken on this topic nationally, around the province, and uh, can you explain what heart failure is in layman's terms? Yeah, so a uh, great question, actually. Uh, so heart failure is when the heart doesn't have the ability to pump blood efficiently around the body. And it's usually a result of the heart being too weak or too stiff or a combination of both. So when that happens, the heart is not able to get the blood supply out to the other vital organs and or to uh, the rest of the body to allow you to carry out activities of daily living, such as getting up, walking, you know, doing exercise, uh, just carrying out routine daily activities. And it often presents with uh, patients experiencing sh- what we call dyspnea or shortness of breath mm-hmm. and or tiredness and feeling fatigued. That's interesting. So just, you know, for everybody listening that might not understand how the cardiovascular system works, I mean, our heart never really stops beating, right? And when it's shuttling blood around our body, it brings other nutrients. Like you just said, shortness of breath. Like why would that be something that occurs when we have a heart that's not working as well as it should? And so it's the, it's the body's response to the impaired left ventricle. So picture it, if you will, that's the powerhouse of the uh, body. So every time that pumps blood, it's got to pump blood right from the top of your head all the way down to your feet. So when the heart is not pumping at its maximum capacity or the capacity that's needed to carry out all of our activities of uh, daily living, then the heart sort of sends or the heart actually um, responds by uh, increasing our depth of respiration. So we breathe harder, breathe faster, thinking that we need to do that. But in actual, it's not a lung problem. It's the heart not being able to get the blood to where it needs to go. And it's seeing it as a being deficient in oxygen. Wow. Yeah. So the, that's a few things. What other things like when, when the, does the body respond to when it's going through heart failure is like we get shortness of breath. Now you said activities of daily living, what else can happen to us? Uh, fatigue uh, is another big hallmark. And uh, that's two of the most popular questions we ask when patients come to clinic is about their shortness of breath and about tiredness. How do you feel on a daily basis? You get up, you do your morning routine. Do you have to go back then and lie down? Are you becoming overwhelmed, fatigued, tired that you have to go sit down because you need that rest because your heart or your body is not able to keep up with the activities that you're currently doing. Mm, That's right. Okay. So somebody's starting to experience these symptoms. Do these get worse over time? Do they progress as somebody's heart failure gets worse? Absolutely. And uh, that's one of the things that often leads patients to seek out medical attention that over the course of time, their symptoms progress. So what the experience is mild uh, shortness of breath or mild tiredness. Sometimes we uh, chalk it up to just getting older uh, as we age and we're not able to do what we uh, did a few years prior. But eventually over, sometimes it can be even a short course of time, they get quite symptomatic. And by that, uh, you know, they fall asleep when they, after they get up to carry out activities, 
have to sit down. They're no longer able to do things uh, progressively. And also uh, they become quite short of breath with minimal activity. So for example, take uh, yourself and I trying to walk up a set of stairs, we can generally do it pretty freely. Uh, you know, we might be, if we climb four sets, we might get a little bit short of breath when we get to the top. But for those patients, as it progresses, as you start going upstairs, sometimes you have to stop mid-stairs or stop when you get to the top, hold on to the handrail and just catch your breath and take a breather and to sort of recoup some of that energy before you can carry on with mm. what it is, uh, wherever you want to go. Okay, so that sounds like a relatively alarming diagnosis for a lot of people. Can heart failure be reduced or reversed in certain cases? Actually, uh, once you get diagnosed with heart failure, it's a diagnosis that you always have. Mm. Uh, and for the most part, it is a progressive uh, disease. But with the current therapies that we use, so the goal-directed medical therapies that are research-based, we call it four pillars of heart failure care or management. And if we can get those four medications in place for people with heart failure, where the heart function is weak, uh, then we can actually see patient symptoms improve so that they improve the quality of life, their mortality improves, their reduction in hospitalizations improve. So we don't call it a care, we a cure, we call it heart failure that has improved mm -hmm. or the heart function has improved, but it's not a curable disease. Okay. Well, that makes sense. So, you know, obviously people that are experiencing a condition like this need to have expert advice because it's quite serious. Of course, how does somebody get referred to a clinic such as yours and particularly your clinic? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so right now, actually, it's in the cardiology referral base. So it's somebody who's had a presentation either to the emergency department or an admission to hospital where the initial or preliminary workup has been done and they have an established or working diagnosis of uh, congestive heart failure. Mm -hmm. So once that's sort of set in motion, they are started on some of the therapies and then they get referred to our clinic. That's when we take over a uh, bigger role in the patient care and management in terms of establishing that patients are on all the right therapies. Mm -hmm. They continue to get the up titration of the medications that's needed to improve that heart function. And we follow them for about six to nine months to get the medications titrated. So we wouldn't see you on a one-time basis. We get you to clinic start you on your therapies. We keep up titrating over a period of about three to four months, then get your heart function reevaluated uh, to see if things have improved. And uh, then based on that result, we would plan as to what the next steps would be in your management. Hmm. Yeah, and for those people listening, titrating is just modifying the medications as you see the benefit or uh, not as much benefit as you think. You just always got to tweak it. It's a, it's a sort of imperfect science sometimes, isn't it? But it, you can fix it over time when you, when you pay attention to it, right? Absolutely. And uh, by, by tweaking the medications, it's, it's not solely based on your symptomatic response. Of course, we always want that. And we want you to improve your symptoms. We want things to uh, improve and you get back to a better quality of life, being more active uh, in your lifestyle. But all of those medications have been tested and tried in uh, large-scale clinical trials and have shown to have the benefit of making you live longer, uh, improving your heart function, and keeping you at a hospital. So our whole goal is to try to get you on all maximum goal-directed medical therapy. So getting you on the maximum dose that's recommended 
Uh, not all patients are going to tolerate it. So we sometimes say it's the maximum tolerable dose, mm-hmm. but it's actually trying to get you on all the therapy so that we can get the best outcome for you and of course your family members. That was Rodolfo Pike with Eastern Health. When we come back, we'll speak with Linda Green, who's living with heart failure, and she'll share her experiences of what we need to know. We'll be right back after the break. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back. We're here with Rodolfo Pike, a nurse practitioner with the Heart Function Clinic in Eastern Health. Let's get back to our interview. Heart failure must also affect anybody no matter where they live. And so I think about Newfoundland having a large rural population. How do you guys support people that might not necessarily be in a hub that would have resources like this? Yeah, so that's, uh, that's again, a very good question and uh, an actual initiative that uh, we are currently looking at within the province is developing a provincial heart failure strategy. We know that all services can be the same uh, depending on where you live, but how is it that we can actually reach out to those remote areas and provide the best possible heart failure care so that you know, irrespective of your geographic location, you still get the best management. So I think that's going to come down to multi, multi-levels of uh, primary care providers, uh, specialists, specialist care in varying geographic regions of the province, all coming together to get the best outcomes. So who can see the patient to provide the best medications to get the best outcome for the heart failure care? And I think that's going to come with uh, continued education with support from larger centers in terms of being able to uh, help support uh, those geographic areas, whether that be through virtual care. Mm -hmm. So using things like remote patient monitoring systems, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. using uh, virtual care by way of, as we use during uh, COVID actually, where we actually looked at our patients through the use of iPads and uh, being able to see face-to-face remote visits and provide triggered uh, questions to see how the person's doing. Are they getting worsening of their symptoms and improvement of their symptoms? And based on their hemodynamics or parameters they provide at home, for example, taking their daily weights, taking their blood pressure, taking their heart rate, were we able to actually increase their medications to actually goal-directed medical therapies to improve heart function from, from afar? That's, that's amazing. And I think, you know, the pandemic was not a great time. However, when it came to remote medicine, it was kind of a critical time for us to step change into seeing that, yeah, we can deliver a lot of these things remotely. Any last thoughts you want to leave the listeners with when it comes to being cognizant of this being a risk factor for many people? Uh, one is know your body and know how your body responds and how it's changing. Don't just assume that uh, you're getting more short of breath walking up the hill Uh, to go berry picking and or uh, trouting that it's because you're getting older. It could be that there could be something going on with your heart. As you get more and more prolonged in the diagnosis of uh, impaired heart function, you're going to notice things like swelling in your legs. Uh, So be aware that if things are sorting, starting to add up, uh, you know, I'm more tired, I'm more short of breath, and uh, I now am starting to have swelling in uh, both my legs, Mm -hmm. then this could be a symptom uh, or symptoms of a bigger problem that's about to come, uh, are about to happen. And generally, 
it's late in the, um, the diagnosis before patients actually reach out to their healthcare provider. Mm. Uh, and sometimes it can be a matter of going back and forth uh, to healthcare providers or to the emergency department on a number of visits before we actually get them diagnosed with heart failure. Mm. Also look at your risk factors. Uh, do you have high blood pressure? Is that well controlled? Am I a diabetic? Is that well controlled? Uh, you know, so do I have other things that are going on, such as other cardiac issues uh, that may actually be contributing or can contribute to the diagnosis of heart failure? The big thing that we want to focus on is getting diagnosed early, getting access to appropriate care, and getting put on those goal-directed medical therapies to actually improve the heart function. Uh, overall with time. Uh, and generally, we'll, we'll only know that if we get repeat testing in terms of uh, another ultrasound of your heart so that we can identify if that number has gone up. That's excellent. Well, and also having experts like yourself on today sharing this important information for people will give people those uh, ideas around, oh, maybe I should go get checked. So thank you so much for taking the time and joining us today. Thank you for having me. That was Rodolfo Pike from the Eastern Health Heart Function Clinic. Now let's chat with Linda Green, who after a long struggle identifying her condition, is living with heart failure. She'll share what we need to know and what it's like living with the condition. Let's check it out. Hi, Linda. Welcome to the show. Hi. How are you? I'm, I'm fantastic. How are you doing? I'm not doing too bad. <laughs> That's great. How's the weather in Central right now? Not too bad, not too bad. It could be warmer, but it's still warmer than St. John's. And well, everywhere is warmer than the Avalon. You guys are fortunate. As soon as we <laughs> pass that isthmus, we're all set. So you live in Gambo right now. And, and you know, you're joining us tonight because you actually are an individual who's living with heart failure. And based on the name, you think, how can somebody live with heart failure? But can you tell us a little bit about the condition, how you're diagnosed in your story? Yes. Um Okay, my condition is I have dilated cardiomyopathy and I have LBBB, which stands for left bundle branch block. Mm -hmm. In dilated cardiomyopathy, the heart is enlarged and it doesn't pump properly. In the left bundle branch block, the left ventricle is delayed and it causes the right ventricle to pump later than the left. They should be pumping in sync to push the blood out into the body, but mine pumps in different intervals. Right. Okay. So how were you diagnosed with this condition? Did you start to feel different one day? That's a long story. Mm. In April of 2006, I started feeling very fatigued and very short of breath. And just being after the winter, I thought, okay, maybe I'm out of shape. So mm -hmm. my husband and I always walk in the spring. So we started walking and I couldn't do our walk. I was so short of breath. And this continued. And unfortunately, my family doctor had coincidentally gone on leave mm -hmm. at the same time that this happened to me. So I spent four, if not five months going back and forth to walk-in clinic and emergency because I was so short of breath. My heart was racing. I could count my heartbeat in my head. It was racing so much. And uh, 
So, and I went to emergencies in Central. I went to emergency here in St. John's. And one doctor in emergency in Central told me I was 50 at the time. I was too young to have a heart condition. Hmm. As it happened, after about four months, being treated for bronchitis, I might add, that's what they told me I had, my family doctor came back. And she, I, by the grace of God, had an appointment that very first morning she was back. When she saw me, she became alarmed because I've had illness over the past years and she knows me well. So she picked up the phone at her clinic and called the internist at our hospital. And I got an appointment to see him the next day. My resting heart rate there was 168. He admitted me immediately, wouldn't even let me go home to get anything. The next day I was given an echocardiogram. When I got back to my room, he was there waiting for me. And I was diagnosed with congestive heart failure. And uh, so then it started a, a fairly long journey. I um, was put on medication. I, I would sweat so profusely that I went to see my family doctor one night and I had just been at the store and tried on a pair of jeans. She thought I had gotten out of the shower and came to see her without drying my hair. Wow. That's how much I was, much I was sweating. That's Linda Green, who's a heart failure patient. She's sharing what we need to know and what it's like living with heart failure. We'll be right back after the break. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back. We're here with Linda Green, who's a heart failure patient. She's sharing what we need to know about what it's like living with heart failure and what we can do to prevent it. Let's check it out. Uh, and you got, I mean, people have to understand here, if you're having a heart rate of 140 beats per minute, that's like the l- high level of exercise for an individual, almost 80% of their target heart rate for like, this would be running the Tele 10 all day long, nonstop. So no wonder you were fatigued. No wonder you were feeling off. And uh, I'm just really glad that you were able to get this. And that's what the value of having somebody that knows your health, you know, what does, what's happened since then? So you've been treated, you're obviously controlled now. Um, What does it mean living with heart failure now? How does that change your life? It changed it dramatically. Uh, After I was diagnosed, I still, I waited about six weeks, I would think, to get into St. John's for a cardiac cath. Mm -hmm. By the time I got in here, my ejection fraction was down to 18. Now, a normal ejection fraction is in the 60s. So I was pretty sick. But fortunately at that time, that was 17 years ago, fortunately at that time they got me on medications and whatnot, and I became reasonably well. And I was stupid enough at the time to think that now I'm feeling well, I'm better, even though they told me there was no cure. But you tend to think when you feel well, you can do anything. So living with heart failure for me means that I have changed my life dramatically over the past four or five years when I had a second episode that was much worse. And uh, it means that you rest when you think you don't need to. You change your diet completely. Um, Salt is a thing that doesn't exist in my house anymore. But having said that, 
when the doctor told me I was in congestive heart failure, my first question to him was, am I dying at 50 years old? Right. 17 years later, I'm still around. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, it, it's been a learning process. And it's been a process that um, my daughter is a registered a Bachelor of Nursing. And she would always say to me, Mom, you're doing too much. But mom knew better. She wasn't doing too much until I finally really did too much too long and I paid the price for it. Hmm. So it just means having to watch your life daily, mm -hmm. having to give up some things that were always normal. Uh, but life is good. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, I mean, you must have learned a tremendous amount about just overall health because the same things that seem to help your condition are things that make people healthier in general. So what were some of the big like light bulbs that went off for you like on your journey of education? On my journey of education, uh, I think listening to my body mm. was a big factor because we ignore our bodies a lot. However, I've had quite a lot of experience with doctors and with medical. I, I had my back broken at one time in a car accident. So it's not unknown to me, but I sort of thought when I got over that episode of not being able to breathe, of almost passing out, when I felt normal, I thought I was normal. So my education has sort of gotten to the fact that even if I don't feel tired, extremely tired, like my doctor keeps saying to me, you need to rest at least two hours a day. Right. And that's something that was hard for me to do, but I do, I do it now. Getting used to living with no salt in my diet, only what's there and eating out now, it seems like I'm eating in a salt factory all the time, but I do do <laughs> it okay. However, um, Walking is really good for your heart as well. And I know that by education. However, I have severe back problems mm -hmm. and I can't walk very much at all. Yeah. So it, it, it's coping with all those issues and coping with everything. But the education of it, what was the most important thing for me was advocating for myself. Mm -hmm. I agree with that 1000%. But you know what, you can advocate for yourself when you know your body and you know there's something wrong. And you see things changing because you have an idea behind it. That's to me is the huge part of it. When people are trying to seek healthcare, because I'm sure you've got to constantly have some level of support just in case something changes. How did the pandemic impact that for you in your experience? I have had tremendous support from my cardiac team, my internist, and my family doctor. Uh, however, COVID impacted it dramatically at the beginning because in January of 2020, I had an implant done. It's called a CRTD. It's a pacemaker defibrillator implanted in my heart. And you normally see your cardio, cardio electrophysiologist uh, three to six months after that. Because of COVID, I didn't get seen for almost a year. I had, I, I had talked to the pacemaker clinic, but and I have a remote device, but I didn't know how my heart was reacting, mm -hmm. um, only by how I felt, and I didn't feel good. So when I look at the healthcare system crisis today, my help from my cardiac team was tremendous. Mm -hmm. But like I said, COVID did sort of 
mess it up for the first few months. Yeah. But support, I have tremendous family support. My friends are supportive. I couldn't ask for much more support than I get. And I have found over the past few years uh, on social media, there are cardiac uh, groups. And I belong to one that's called Canadian Women with Medical Heart Issues. And I belong to one on the Heart and Stroke Foundation. And believe you me, you can learn a lot from that, an awful lot. Because women present so differently from men with heart conditions. Oh, that's good to know. And that's interesting for anybody who's listening. Then, you know, you can find these advocacy sites out there. I guess the question, you know, as we start to wind down here would be like, what do you wish you knew about this beforehand? I knew nothing about cardiomyopathy. Didn't even know it existed. And even when I was having so much trouble breathing, uh, my heart never came to my mind once. I thought there was something wrong with my lungs and they were treating me for bronchitis. I left a walk-in clinic one day. The doctor had given me a puffer and I threw it in the garbage on the way out because I had been given so many. I knew it wasn't working. Um, when I look back on it, I was 50 years old. And if there's someone reasonably healthy and they're feeling things, you sort of tend to ignore it and not research it because it's just something happening. However, I've come to find that everything is important. And if you ignore something that's out of the ordinary, you may not be here to tell the story. And that was a hard lesson to learn. Uh, When I was diagnosed, it was very scary. I was talking to my daughter on the phone one night and her her grandfather had died. And uh, she said, mom, will you stop eating chips while you're talking to me? And I said, I'm not eating chips. That's my breathing. So she panicked then yeah. and said, get to emerge right away. So there's, th- there's things that happen. And you know what? When you're young and when you ha- are reasonably healthy, you tend to ignore these little things as, oh, that's just me being foolish. There's nothing wrong. But it's very important and especially today, even though for women's heart issues, I was overlooked for a period of about five months. Today, it's a little better. So if you find something, you know your body, or you should know your body. If you don't know your body, you should learn your body. And when you feel something, don't give up. Mm -hmm. Keep going and keep questioning and keep making sure that you're getting the best of care. And as important, listen to those people who know just because you feel well doesn't mean you are well. When you are suffering from a chronic condition that's going to be with you forever. Yeah, well, that's you got the resource of a very smart uh, nurse in the household that knows these things, and then mom, uh, mom learns from daughter after a while. But yeah, he keeps telling me I don't listen enough, but I'm getting better. Well, I'll tell you one thing: you're you're great talker, and what you shared today was so important and so valuable. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today and sharing such a personal story, Linda. Well, I feel that if we don't share our personal stories nobody will benefit. But if one person today hears this and has something that's out of the ordinary and goes and gets checked, it's worth it.
That's excellent. Well, I'll look forward to checking in again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me and good day. Thank you to my guests for joining me today. We learned that education is key, that treatments can be effective, and that heart failure and heart disease can impact every aspect of our life. If 80% of cases are preventable, I hope you take that to heart, literally. Change your nutrition, get more exercise, and know how healthy you are, and these are all things we can do on our own. Well, thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. We'll see you back here next week for another episode of The Wall Show on your VOCM.